0: Welcome to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm your host, Carl Morand. Today I'm talking with Ali Ansari, author of the new book, The Politics of Nationalism in Modern Iran. The book traces the nationalist movement in Iran from the tobacco revolt of 1891 up to the current government led by President Ahmadinejad. Ansari explains how the events of the early 20th century led to the more well-known events of Iran's recent history, providing detailed insight into the key people that have been a part of Iran's nationalist movement. The book explains the internal struggles that the movement has faced in the past century, along with outside influences that have affected its development. Ali, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. If you could, could you start out by uh, giving us a little bit of uh, background on yourself and what led you to write this book?
1: Well, um, thank you for having me. I'm, uh, uh, my background is Iranian. So I uh, actually came to the United Kingdom uh, just before the revolution. My parents were sending me to boarding school here. Um, I then developed uh, uh, an interest in history uh, and found really as I was going through my university education that uh, I um, could obviously do something uh, more specialised on Iran, partly because I had a deep interest in that and it was a a sort of a niche area really compared to what most people were doing. But also as I went on to do my... um, uh, PhD research. I was uh, obviously had Persian and could apply that and could access sources that maybe uh, other people couldn't. But but more than that, um, I suppose I had a, a cultural access that in some ways uh, uh, other people might not have had. So my my research has really been down the sort of the route of what we would loosely term modern Iranian history and I think my PhD work had been broadly in the areas of uh, ideology and nationalism in Iran so this latest work rather belatedly I have to say is, is really the, uh, my effort at turning what was a uh, a modest PhD uh, dissertation into a uh, hopefully a, a readable and provocative book
0: Excellent in the... Uh... In the book you talk about the tobacco revolt as uh, being the moment of national awakening and sort of the start of the, uh, the nationalist movement. Could you talk about the influence that revolt had?
1: Well, what I try to suggest in the book is that really this is the standard orthodox narrative of when sort of nationalism as a political movement of mass mobilization starts in Iran. And it's really um, a signpost that is laid down by the noted uh, British scholar of of Iran, Edward Brown, who was then actually professor of Arabic in in Cambridge, but really is is the father of uh, Persian studies in the UK. And he was the one that really, looking at the constitutional revolution, um, a decade or so afterwards, pointed to the roots of this constitutional movement in the tobacco revolt of 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 the early 1890s. And I was, you know, I say that this is a, as good a place as any to start. Although in the book I try to deconstruct that and to show that in many ways that's quite an artificial beginning, and it's a beginning that uh, a, a start that really was laid down by uh, a, a British writer, a European writer, um, who then. Uh, whose writings were effectively sort of digested and endorsed by a number of other Iranian writers who came after him. But in many ways, we can look further back to see the roots, the sort of the, the cultural or even, to quote Anthony Smith, the ethnic roots of Iranian nationalism go back some way further.
0: You mentioned uh, the British. Could you talk about the influence that European society and European governments had uh, during the initial stages of the nationalist movement in Iran?
1: Well, one of the things I argue is that uh, traditionally um, uh, nationalisms in the Middle East, uh, not just in Iran, are seen as antagonistic to Western colonialism, Western imperialism. And they tend to be seen in conjunction as a sort of a... an attempt to sort of free from the shackles of imperialism, and therefore very much defined against europe what i 've tried to say is that the relationship is a, is a good deal more subtle than that, and that this uh, this black and white relationship simply did not exist that what you had was a series of intellectuals um, in Iran in this case who yes wanted to find a way to reinvigorate what they considered to be rather stale. Uh, political and, and social systems in their countries, but that they, they were very much shaped by a vocabulary that they inherited from Europe. And what I argue is that this vocabulary came from the European Enlightenment, largely the 18th century European Enlightenment and, and, and drawn really from a, a lexicon that shaped the Anglo-American uh, um, enlightenment of the period. It's not something that people look at too much. We tend to always see that nationalisms were born in the French Revolution, and it really it was the French view of of, of the of the nation and the state that was adopted by by Middle Eastern nationalists. So I'm trying to shift that focus slightly differently, and to say actually there were other uh, there were other. Um, Uh, legacies that they drew on that's not to say there wasn't an antagonistic relationship to some extent with the europeans certainly in their political manifestations and their attempts to control resources in the middle east but it's just to also argue that the relationship was not quite as confrontational as some later nationalists would have us believe
0: interesting i think yes um, many people would be surprised to uh to read about the connections with the you know, American revolution and the American sort of experiment.
1: One of, the, one of the things, if I can elaborate on this, is that quite a few nationalists, and this also applies to the early nationalists, so it also applies to the Ottoman empires to Iran, had joined uh, the Freemasons. Now, if you join the Freemasons uh, and you belong to what they considered to be this sort of international or transnational sort of intellectual brotherhood, you bought into certain ideas You bought into certain ideas about religion and superstition. You bought into certain ideas about liberalism, progressiveness, so on and so forth. The notion of government, what it means uh, to be a republic, put that in inverted commas because it has very particular meanings at the time. Basically, a government, um, a central government restricted by law. And what they emphasize is that in order to progress, you need – and what I argue in the book is this move, as in Europe, from a republic of letters to a republic of laws. This is very much derived from a sort of an enlightenment project, which we see reaching fruition during the American Revolution, but also in a sort of a Whig tradition uh, that you see in, uh, in Great Britain. And of course, other countries in Europe also adopt certain of these ideas, but it's actually not entirely indebted uh, to the sort of the French model of the post-French revolutionary period. It it does have, you know, it does have a a, a debt elsewhere. And that's simply what I'm it's simply what I'm trying to highlight. And it's very clear. It's very clear in the writings of many of these individuals that the model they look for is a sort of a constitutional government in which government is limited by the rule of law. And that's what they they really obsess about. So it's, 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 it's an interesting development and an interesting legacy and one that regrettably has largely been lost in more recent scholarship.
0: What do you think... Uh Going back in time to the early 20th century would have been the ideal system that the revolutionaries would have tried to put in place if they – you know, if wishing would make it so.
1: Well, I think they were fixated on the notion of a republic and a republic could be either the model that was taken in the United States or – and this was their preference I would suggest – really a republic on the model of the constitutional monarchy that was developed in Great Britain. And what this meant really is obviously the monarch restricted by laws in which it's a parliamentary system uh, and a separation of powers. These individuals drew heavily on the writings of people of the 18th century Enlightenment. Um, they were, interestingly enough, very fond of David Hume, uh, which was which quite a surprise to me actually at the time because David Hume is a well-known atheist. Yeah. But, you know, they—they they, the, the reason they liked him is because he really challenged this notion of superstition, really, in, in, in the way in politi- uh, uh, political systems worked. But also they drew on French writers such as Montesquieu. There were uh, other writers such as Voltaire. They didn't always get to grips with them as well as they could have. But what was interesting to me is that they were more familiar with them than um, I had initially thought. And their model, really, again, as I said was this uh, was the imposition of a legal system, which they defined as a republic, but didn't necessarily mean the removal of the monarchy. In fact, they often felt that a monarchy had to exist in part to keep the traditional uh, sentiments of Iranian society in check as well, to satisfy a certain yearning, but it had to be legally
0: restricted. Do you think they saw the uh, continuation of a monarchy as sort of a, a temporary measure to maintain stability, or was that something that they envisioned long term would would stay in place
1: well it 's very interesting because um, there seem to be some debate among Iranian nationalists as to how they should proceed um, a, a, a very interesting little vignette that comes out is in one thousand nine hundred and twenty four when they start to discuss about you know, an abolition of the monarchy and, and, and to set up a, a republic in its purest form, what they do is they go and scrutinize the American constitution, so they, they go start reading it and find out you know, what can we learn from this. <laughs> brief moment, I have to say. I think, by and large, uh, most of them are realistic enough to to know that what they they need is a monarchy that's Basically represents authority, the consolidation of authority um, before they can move to an, uh, another stage. I mean what, what bothered them in many ways was their attempt at constitutional government faltered on the fact that actually they didn 't have good government in place in the first place. there was no point restricting an authority that had no authorities. So what you had to do is to actually step backwards and establish good governance, and this could often be of an authoritarian nature, but the fact is, if you didn't have a consolidated, unified authority, you couldn't then move on to stage two, which was to restrict it. In the American case, of course, the Americans had inherited a political system from, from Britain. So therefore, you know, they could move straight on to stage two, which is restricting it. Uh, from the Iranian case, they felt actually that they had no central government, and therefore they had to build central government in the first place. And as a result, this is why uh, when the Pahlavis come in, when Reza Khan becomes Reza Shah, he is actually widely supported by the intelligentsia because he's seen as the strong man who can restore a sort of central authority and bring uh, centralised government uh, uh, to Iran uh, which can then be constitutionally limited. Of course in that case the limitations were never uh, really imposed. They they were able to get through stage one but not really much down the route to stage
0: two. Could you talk uh, a bit about uh, Takuzade and his particularly his uh, List of prescriptions, which I found very interesting to read, and his um, uh, his influence on the the nationalist movement.
1: Tagizade is an enormously controversial figure, but. Uh, um He's controversial in large parts because he's not only a, an intellectual, he's also an activist. And, and the truth is when you mix, when you mix the, the academy with politics, you always get controversy. I mean, there will be people who always criticise what he, what he did or at times what he said. He's not the only person to have laid down these prescriptions. There was another, uh, another group that did something quite similar. But his have become very famous uh, largely because um, of one – Prescription. I think it's number three on the list uh, where he says that uh, uh, Iranians must adopt all the means of uh, European civilization. And that's an important qualification, by the way, European civilization, both uh, sort of mentally or rationally. Some people translate it as, as spiritually. It depends how you want to translate the words. And in, in sort of cultural terms, I mean, basically materially and um, and in terms of, uh, 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 of thought processes. Now, people have said that this is a horrendous, you know, I mean, this is, uh, uh, they've argued very strongly that, you know, this shows how he'd sold out basically to foreign powers. Of course, what most people do is they take that one prescription outside the other 26 or so he has. If you look at the others and you put it in context, you'll see at the same time he says one must protect the Persian language, one must uh, promote history. Well, you know, I mean, he, he basically is quite clear that um, uh, you know he's not saying for a wholesale, uh, basically, um, adoption of, of European uh, values uh, as a whole. The key, I think, to understanding him, and this is what I... What he argued very strongly for this idea of the Enlightenment is his preoccupation with the concept of civilization. That what he's saying is that Iranians need to adopt essentially the, the, the norms of civilization, in this case, as he sees it. The continent that has achieved most so far is European civilization. He's not talking about European culture as a whole. It's it's really about taking on the manners and the attitudes of this sort of most advanced civilization. And effectively, if you look at the term of reference, uses returning it, you know, coming back to Iran. He almost saying that we had this civilization, we have forsaken it. Now we need to get it back. And, of course, uh, uh, Tarizadeh himself admits – I mean, the phrase itself was actually borrowed from a Kurdish nationalist. It wasn't his. He just adapted it. But he admits that it was a fairly provocative thing to say and that, you know, had he had his time again, he might have used slightly different words. But he does say that at the time when he put it in, 1921, the situation was so bad that in his own words, he said, I had to throw a sort of an intellectual hand grenade into there and get people to wake up to realise how bad things were. So this, again, I think is one of the problems, as I said, of mixing politics with, uh, with uh, um, sort of intellectual life and, and one of the misreadings that comes. He... You know, later on in life, did admit that it was probably a, a, a statement too far in terms of the words he used. But of course, as I said, there was another set of prescriptions that had uh, been issued by another group. I think the young Iranians or something, or young Iran group, and they were very similar. They didn't use quite the same provocative language, but they were very similar. And these represent really the clearest sort of um, the clearest manifesto for Iranian nationalism that we have. A lot of people complain that there wasn't one, but. There clearly was, and and they'd written, you know, there were long formulations. And if you look at them in the context of their time, they're very heavily uh, influenced by this sort of uh, 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 ideas of the Enlightenment. I mean, education is absolutely central. Education is, is fundamental to this. In order for us to get out of the mess we're in, we need to educate
0: our public. Do you think there, possibly, you mentioned that he, you know, later in life... Yeah. Wished he had, I guess, expressed it differently. Do you think there would be a there was a way for him to express that sentiment that wouldn't have garnered so much negative reaction?
1: Oh, I think so. I mean, I think if if you'd gone the similar way to the, how the others had done it, but at the time, I mean, his problem was is that he was a very provocative uh, thinker. He was quite a con- controversial. Um, uh, political figure. And I mean, to, to be perfectly honest, the reason why he's been much maligned uh, in retrospect is because many people on the left, uh, both on the sort of hard left and the hard right, if I may put it that way, uh, really disliked him. I mean, they saw him as too anglophile. They saw him as uh, someone who um, uh, was emblematic of everything that they'd come to dislike. In fact, as, as a as an example of his time, what he said was not actually that shocking. I mean, that's what's interesting. In the context of his time, uh, I think the early nationalists were far uh, keener or far more willing to in, to engage in self-criticism than later nationalists were, who became, you know, uh, much more sensitive to this sort of sense of cultural superiority. I mean, Thierry Zaudet and his... Uh, uh, his, his, his compatriots at the time were much more willing uh, to basically take a scalpel, in a sense, uh, uh, to their own society and culture and say, you know, what have we done wrong that we need to put right? Later nationalists were unwilling to do that. They just basically sought to, uh, you know, push a sort of a doctrine of pride, really, is all that can be said. And to say that, you know, there's nothing wrong with us. It's all to do with the West. Well, you know, for Tarizadeh and his generation, particularly in the aftermath of the First World War, this was simply not the case.
0: It almost seems as though his, uh, his analysis was possibly more grounded in reality or more willing to change and adapt as opposed to just insisting that the way thing, you know, that the status quo is okay and we can make this work.
1: Well, what's fascinating about Tarizadeh and that generation is that, you know, if you'd asked me this question, you know, 20 years ago, uh, I would probably have still sort of said, um, You know, he was wrong and uh, he'd sold out too much to the West. I mean, you could see that attitude, and certainly in Iran in the aftermath of the Islamic Revolution, where there was a heightened sort of sense of, uh, you know, self achievement, independence, so on and so forth. Uh, You know, Taki said it was part of a generation that got it wrong. Interestingly, now, I mean, if you, all history being contemporary history, if you look at it from the perspective of what's going on in the Islamic Republic today, there are many people who are far more willing to give Tarizadeh a second hearing. And, th- and this is what's fascinating, and not only Tarizadeh, even Reza Shah, people who, up until about 20 years ago, would have been condemned outright as uh, as a generation that sold out, and now being looked at, picked up and looked at and saying, well, maybe they had a point, you know, I mean, <laughs> maybe, maybe, you know, we haven't got trips with our problems and and that's why I think Tarizade is actually on the way back.
0: Could you talk a little bit – you mentioned uh, David Hume. Yeah. Um, Could you talk a bit about the influence that religion had for the early nationalists and the sort of balance they tried to strike with regards to religion and governance?
1: Well, one of the great myths of the early nationalists is that they were a-religious or actually atheistic. And, uh, you know, they were against religion and they, you know, uh, uh, radical nationalists, secular, so on and so forth. I think, you know, what we've been what recent scholarship has shown and what I've tried to sort of extend is this view that first of all, being secular doesn't mean you're atheistic. I mean, there was a view that being secular meant that, but that's certainly not the case. I think a lot of them were what we would broadly call secular again, in the Anglo American model, not in the French model. That is that there should be a separation of religion from politics, but religion is an important part of life. It just shouldn't be politicized. This is quite different from the French model, which you can see, you know, uh, replicated in Turkey, at least until recently. Now, uh, this view that these early nationalists were all anti-religious is simply not true. I mean, the, the mere fact that they, a large majority were Freemasons will provide you, you know, with evidence of that. What they were really against, and this is where David Hume or the ideas of David Hume as they understood it, um, it has to be said because I'm not sure how familiar they were exactly with his ideas, but where David Hume became useful was their distinction between a proper religion – uh, and what they understood as superstition. And superstition also was associated much more with the clerical hierarchy. So they were very, very anti the Orthodox faith, which obviously brought them uh, in, uh, uh, in conflict with the ulama, uh, with the mullahs. Um, But they were not uh, irreligious. Quite uh, clearly, they were not irreligious. Uh, You see that in a lot of their writings. And Tarizadeh actually is quite clear on this. I mean, Tarizadeh almost has a sort of – later in life, has a slight reaction to it. Or he thinks that what he's unleashed is perhaps something that he – or what he helped unleash is perhaps uh, not what he'd intended. And he sees that sort of radical – Almost atheistic secularism, if I can put it that way, in the later 20th century, really worries him. I mean, he thinks it's it's bad that we forego religion altogether, uh, and he says that's important. If you look at the early nationalists, they're all on this uh, they're all on this wavelength. They say religion, yes, superstition, no. Superstition is holding us back, but um, religion, properly constructed and understood, is useful. And the greatest example of this, by the way, is the individual who's generally considered to be the father of political Islam – Jamal Ad-Din al-Afghani. Afghani himself was also a Freemason, but also argued very heavily against uh, superstition and ignorance amongst the religious classes and had a very enlightened view of what religion and, quote, philosophy was about, uh, or were about, beg your pardon. And he um, he argues that, I mean, it, it's interesting, his disciples tend to take from him what they want. But if you look at his writings as a whole, um, he saw religion as a useful means of achieving... Uh, political sort of liberation, if, if you will, but he was strongly, strongly antithetical to what he considered to be orthodox, dogmatic, superstitious religion.
0: You mentioned that uh, arguably the revolution of 1979 simply unleashed the potential of the late Pahlavi state by removing what limited restrictions on action remained. Could you talk about uh, what you view were the precursors of the 1979 revolution, particularly as they date farther back to the early nationalists, because I imagine most people have a view of the 1979 revolution being just directly related to the history that immediately preceded it.
1: Yes. I mean, I think there's a, there's a narrative of the Islamic revolution that tends to see it as a reaction to what may have gone on in the constitutional revolution, or as I say, the atheism or secularism of the earlier period. Um, I tend to look at it slightly differently. What I'm Uh, basically arguing is that the early nationalists had a constitutional project um, and the constitutional project is twofold. Create good governance and good governance must be matched by accountability and rights. So a legal system that restricts the power of government um, and also protects the rights of citizens. What really happens in the late Pahlavi state is that second part of the project is not fulfilled. So, Although the state is built and becomes more and more powerful, um, the protection for citizens is, is, is never really institutionalized in the law. And one of the things I draw attention to is that the great legal reforms that took place in the 1920s and 30s under Reza Shah and his very energetic minister of uh, justice, uh, a gentleman by the name of Ali Akbar Darwar, who really – Sort of effectively invented the Iranian judiciary out of nothing. I mean, there were precedents for this, but he effectively put it in what he What he effectively did was was provide uh, the new state with legal muscle. but the second aspect of that reform, which was to protect the citizenry with sort of rights in the face of this stronger state, uh, were not achieved they weren't achieved by the time Reza Shah was deposed, and his son also failed to really move ahead with this, such that in the Islamic Revolution, what you have is charismatic leadership, which basically um, is not constitutional in, in a way in which the the nationalists had previously thought it's predicated in some ways on, on, on the on the idea of monarchy as that Muhammad Reza Shah had developed. So Reza Shah's son also moved into the realms of a sort of a spiritual religious monarchy, and uh, um, he had some rather vague and perhaps woolly notions of what a monarch was meant to be about. But it was all about uh, um, some sort of uh, you know a divine right, and the uh, and, and and you know father knew best, and so on and so forth. It certainly didn't involve the law in any way that the early nationalists had. So what you have effectively is a strong state, increasingly strong state by the end of the 20th century financed with, uh, oil wealth, which is, which is giving that centralized authority a, a huge, more, more, uh, much more power. And then in the revolution, of course, any other restriction that might have even been in theory put on it, be it, you know, Western opprobrium, um, you know, the Shah at least had a desire not to offend anyone abroad. Um, in, uh, uh, in the Islamic Republic, even that's discarded. And what you have is uh, a, a guardianship of the jurists, this tefari system, replacing the monarchy, but with much, much more extensive powers. So in a sense, you have a modern state with this charismatic leader on top of it who can exploit it to the full. I mean, basically, he, he uh, is able to use this state uh, in any way he sees fit without any sense that there are restrictions on his power. And to add to that, by the way, the religious zeal that comes through in this early period, you know, it gives the Pahlavi state um, a huge amount of dynamism and energy. Unfortunately, and this is the bit that most people don't get, they don't reinvest in the the Pahlavi state. They take a lot out of it. They don't reinvest in its institutional structures such that we get to a situation now where actually – the state as was being built in the 1920s and 30s is is almost derelict. I mean, it, it has very few systems of accountability or checks and balances or anything remaining. And uh, it's become a very personality led government.
0: That's interesting, because you mentioned in the early stages, they were looking for sort of a strong central leader, strong central government to and then then be able to sort of impose checks and balances and, you know, limits. And it seems as if they've Achieved the the strong central governance and then almost just sort of blown through that without the ability to have any restraints placed on it.
1: That's exactly the problem. Is basically what they've done is they've achieved stage one, but we're never able to get round to stage two. And there were obviously different reasons that this this uh, uh, that caused this. I mean, many of the early nationalists obviously didn't live long enough. I mean, well, you know, let's give you one example. I mean, one of the reasons that they were not, you know, that they were much more. Um, enthusiastic in some ways about strong government, was they simply said, you know, we don't have an educated public. How can we have a republic or a democracy when nobody's educated? Nobody can read or write or whatever. So what we need to do is establish education on a massive scale. Now, in order to do a lot of these big, big projects that they needed, big sort of institutionalized projects, not infrastructure in an economic sense, but infrastructure in a social and educational sense, you need someone strong at the helm who can push all these things through. So they got that bit, and of course, ironically, then get a f- relatively educated public uh, I mean now, if you look at Iran today it 's one of the most literate societies in the world, but actually they haven 't matched it with anything political to match the demands and You see this increasingly with people in Iran. We talk about this middle class and but it 's more than that really. you talk about all these you know literate people who are then saying well you know, we we actually want to share in in what 's going on but we want to participate in politics, but of course that 's excluded to them it's 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 that that Part of the sort of the the accountability has been uh, has been stripped of them and it 's one of the great tragedies of modern Iranian nationalism is that it 's lost sight of the very reason that it was uh, it, it was it was developed, and that is the people the people themselves are absent from Iranian nationalism and you, you hear this all the time people talking about the rights of Iran and the right of Iran to do this to enrich uranium to I don't know, to have its influence in such and such a place, the right of Iran to do that. And yet nobody really talks about the rights of Iranians. I mean if you if, if you look at that, there's no talk about it at all. I mean they're, they're, they're not interested. Everything is subsumed to the nation. But who is the nation? Well, the nation seems to be defined by one or two people at the top.
0: How do you think – you mentioned that many of the early nationalists obviously didn't live long enough to – see the 79 revolution how do you think they would have viewed it and particularly the establishment of the Islamic Republic uh,
1: I think in all honesty they would have been horrified I think they would have been horrified this is exactly what they were trying to avoid uh, what the Islamic Republic represented in many ways was um, a union of the radical left and the radical right but with a heavy element of religious reactionism. and it was this religious reactionism that would have appalled them I mean, this is what they were hoping education would prevent because they were well aware. And if you go back to the 19th century, you have the Barbie revolt. The Barbie revolt is a millenarian movement that then gives way to the Baha'i religion uh, that we now know. Now, a lot of them, while they were horrified at the level of violence meted out to the Barbies and later the Baha'is and thought this was astonishing behavior for a civilized society they also were very critical of the fact that in quote a you know modern country someone could come up and claim to be the messiah i mean you know they sort of said this is you know this is just superstition you know what 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 the hell are we doing we have to find a way to educate ourselves out of this sort of superstition i mean they, they had this very ambivalent you know I suppose relationship to to Barbism in that respect it both provoked a good reaction, but it also uh, generated a certain amount of uh, skepticism and uneasiness and I think uh, this dislike of these sort of religious movements uh, would have meant that uh, the 1979 revolution when Khomeini was being you know uh, apparently you know, his face was seen in the moon and you know bits of his beard were being found in
0: pages of the Koran and this sort of thing. <laughs> Horrifying. You mentioned that uh, everything is subsumed to the nation and that the rights of actual Iranians is not really considered. Mm. How do you feel that uh, people in Iran would view the assertions by their government that Iran, you know, has certain rights to, like you said, enrich uranium or exert influence in various uh, places? Do you think they feel that? That's representing them, and that they are, you know, that their sort of wishes or that they're being represented well by their government.
1: Well, I mean, this is one of the reasons in a way that I wrote the book is I was always very struck that Iranians on the surface, at least, can appear extremely nationalistic. I mean, it's a way of, you know, showing a degree of loyalty to a political system. And, of course, Tahizadeh and others had a term for this. He called these people professional patriots. You know, he said they they do it almost as a job, but they don't really understand what it means. You know, it's just a, 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 an indication of loyalty. And I think, you know, Iranians are very uh, sensible to this notion. Some of them are very emotional about it, even among the diaspora, by the way, not necessarily within Iran itself. In fact, in some ways, I think in the diaspora, when they don't have to live in Iran, are probably more nationalistic in some ways than those within the country. I think in the country, the, there are strong opinions as to what uh, nationalism really means. And I think the, uh, you know there's a, a, a strong sense of agreement about you know the, the right to enrich uranium. But I think many young nationalists now in Iran also say there are many other rights that are completely ignored. And, and, uh, you know, you can't subsume everything down the right to enrich uranium or the right to do, you know, something in a very abstract way without actually dealing with very tangible um, individual civil rights. Um, It seems to be a big contradiction for them. And I think there's a lot of skepticism among among, certainly – Uh, uh, sort of intellectual nationalists, if I can put it that way, those who've who've looked at this in a bit more depth and also um, among, say, students and others, at the government's claims at the moment to be representing uh, the nation. Uh, But it's, it's, it's also an interesting reflection on where the Islamic Republic is going because, of course, they've depended on three uh, aspects of legitimacy, principally, of course, Islam. Uh, Then they've argued also that they're a republic. Well, those two planks have largely been knocked down. I mean, they they have very little credibility in in the field of, you know, projecting Islam. I mean, because a number of things they say are so strange, uh, according to standard Islamic doctrine, that – you know, p- people find it quite awkward. Well, the Republican element has also been, you know, knocked down. I mean, if you look at the 2009 elections, um, you know, it doesn't look good for them. So the one thing they have to rely on now is nationalism. And they've obviously been using that, uh, uh, you know, with with wild abandon. And, of course, it works. And, uh, you know, one of, one of the things I say in the book is I say, you know, if uh, if uh, religion was the opium of the masses, well, you know, nationalism has proved to be a much more energizing drug and uh, the government uses and, and it, it works you know i mean it works but i think when people sit down and think and they say well you know what does it mean to be iranian you know why is it important to be you know when you think about what does it mean to be american most people will say well you know i i have certain rights you know i can do certain things i am proud to be this because you know i have a relationship with the state the state represents me so on and so forth well in iran they can't say that at the moment and uh you know this idea that we 're all proud to be Iranian simply because either we were born there or because the the earth is very nice or has nice mountains or nice buildings or the history is great, so on and so forth well I mean that 's all very well and nice, but it it 's not really satisfying in, a, in a,
0: <laughs> a modern context so do you think the people who are very passionately nationalistic in Iran are they just sort of blindly supporting it as sort of viewing okay i 'm Iranian, so I have to support Iran? Or do they think that the things the Iranian state is doing does sort of advance their interest or represent them or they have pride in what the Iranian government does? It's a bit of both, but uh, – I think increasingly, the government is losing
1: that ability to convince people that it's, it's doing things in their national interest. I mean, there is a bit of both. And I mean, it's, it's you know, the, the government in Iran is is heavily helped uh, by some of the rhetoric that comes out of the United States or Israel or other places. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, you know, people will always rally what around what they consider familiar. Um, but, you know, a, 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 an American friend of mine would always say, I mean, one of the hostages, in actual fact, at the time, he always used to comment on how perverse the whole situation was, that on the one hand, they'd be shouting all sorts of obscenities against the United States or the West and, you know, championing Iranian nationalism and the, almost with the next breath would, would, would tell him, you know, can I have a visa? Now, you know this sort of contradiction is 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 you know shows that actually even the nationalism um, that exists in Iran uh, is perhaps what we might term a soft nationalism. It it, it serves a political purpose, but uh, it's amazing how flexible it can be when 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 push comes to shove. And I think this is what Tarizadeh argued against, and this is where he's very useful. I mean, he says uh, you know um, patriotism. I think I quoted some of the book. He says, you know, patriotism or brackets, nationalism, I translate as patriotism uh, cannot be imposed from above. It can only be built on the foundations of justice. Um, and I think so. I can't remember the exact quote. But he basically says it, it can real patriotism, real nationalism can only be built from the base up and, and really, again, through a sense of social justice.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like any nationalism or patriotism that is imposed would be short lived and artificial and wouldn't receive much you know strong support
1: it's amazing in
0: the sense that i have to
1: say that uh, in iran there's it's you know one of the fascinating things for me and i say in the introduction is how nationalism as an ideology is so pervasive in the discourse of the country i mean you know when they when they want to abuse you in iran they don't call you an infidel or don't call you a slur a sort of religious slur they always call you a traitor i mean you know, that's you know the language is all whether it be praise or whether it be abuse is always done in the language of whether you're um uh, whether you're a true patriot or true nationalist or not what i've tried to do in the book is to really say well what does that mean you know what does that mean this language is used very loosely but what does it mean really you know uh, to be an iranian in the modern age and i think the early nationalists had a pretty good shot at it, actually. I mean, I think they they pretty much had it summed up. What they failed to do, really, was to be able to implement it. And one of the reasons that I think they found was that it's one thing to talk in your ivory tower about what nationalism means and uh, uh, to have this sort of republic of letters. It's another thing to begin to actually put it into practice and to you know to spread the good news. Because the minute you start to disseminate things, and it becomes a more popular movement in, a, in terms of the numbers, uh, obviously it becomes diluted. The message becomes diluted and in some ways more radical. You have to simplify it. Everything becomes a bit more tabloid, if I can put it that way, rather than deep. And, and it was always a problem. It was always a problem for them. They could not reconcile this you know on the one hand we want to educate everyone but actually to educate millions of people means in some ways we have to simplify everything how do you simplify everything well it starts to go into sort of um catchphrases if i can put it that way i mean it, it, it loses meaning so as you expand the meaning becomes diluted and i think you know that's that's where the project, in some ways, um, hit what we might term sort of friction. It, it wasn't it wasn't able to achieve all that it wanted to achieve in the first instance, at least.
0: Turning to more recent history, how do you think uh, Ahmadinejad has been able to use nationalist sentiments to both maintain his own power internally and exert uh, Iranian influence abroad?
1: Well, what's remarkable about Ahmadinejad is he's really been the most uh, singular nationalist uh, leader in post-revolutionary Iran. He's been able to do things that previous presidents simply have not been able to do. And part of that is his character. Part of that is because he comes from a very sort of hardline uh, political background, so he's able to get away with it, whereas others on the sort of the center or the center-left were not. They were always accused of uh, forsaking the Islamic revolution. And Ahmadinejad, for the reasons that I sort of cited earlier, because of the failures of that Islamic legitimacy or the failures of the democratic. Legitimacy, democratic, quote, Republican legitimacy that they, they'd had, they'd enjoyed, um, really went uh, full scale in search of a um, of a nationalist um, uh, ideological sort of platform and legitimacy, and um, he's used it. In an extraordinary way, I mean, to the extent that he's uh, not been shy about using pre-Islamic symbols, uh, not been shy about, uh, you know, having uh, mock-ups of Persepolis to Greek President Putin in 2007 as he was. Um, He uh, arranged for the Cyrus Cylinder to return to Iran for the first time since the Shah had his uh, um, now- uh, notorious, but at uh, uh, the time, is his great bonanza in Persepolis for the two thousand five hundredth anniversary of the Iranian monarchy. Um, and you know, when you see the video of of, of this unveiling of the Cyrus Cylinder in Tehran, I mean, you think that uh, Ahmadinejad is almost in tears. Uh, what he does, of course, is he says Cyrus, you know, the great pre-Islamic founder of the Persian Empire. He basically defines him as a sort of a, a pseudo-Muslim. I mean, it's quite it's quite entertaining how he tries to marry these several different strategies together and he legitimizes Cyrus but by, by basically saying was that you know by basically arguing that he's a Muslim before Islam uh, and therefore he's legitimate but of course for many orthodox Muslims in Iran particularly in the hardline government they all find this a bit strange and they uh, you know they don't like it but in a way they see Ahmadinejad as trying uh, to keep the people on board it does of course give you a very good indication of where popular sentiment lies these days that the government thinks it's necessary to go down that route
0: and in uh... Recent years, there have been several uh, confrontations that Ahmadinejad has had with the religious leaders in Iran. Do you think he'll be able to maintain his his power and his uh, popularity or do you think that people will stop siding with him?
1: Um, I think – Ahmadinejad's popularity was always a little bit artificial. Uh, he had a strong support from the Supreme Leader. He had strong support from the various hard organizations and government. He spoke, you know, uh, in a way that uh, appealed popular sentiment. But of course, at the end of the day, he's made a complete mess of the economy. Um, he hasn't handled the international relations particularly well. Um, all this populism has really come to naught. And just as this sort of support that he had, in my view, was always very soft, so too when going gets hard he'll start to lose it. I think nationalism is a great, great um, mobilizer in Iran. But you also have to be a credible champion of it. And one of the um, uh, parallels and comparisons I draw is that the last Shah in the run-up to the revolution spoke in increasingly religious terms. I mean, he spoke in very spiritual and uh, mystical terms, dreams, and so on and so forth. I think people never saw the Shah as a credible, as a credible sort of representative of the true religion. And I don't think that people... See the leaders of the Islamic Republic as, as credible representations of Iranian nationalism um, they 've released that genie out of the bottle yet again. I think they would have had difficulty suppressing it, to be honest, but it 's now come out full uh, uh, full strength and um, i don 't think that Ahmadinejad will be able to ride that tiger for much longer.
0: Do you think there are are currently any uh, leaders or potential leaders in Iran who could fill that role as credible nationalist leader?
1: I think there are a number. I mean, I I think there are a number even within the Islamic Republic. I mean, it's it's you know the the longer this goes on the more difficult it becomes but you know for example Khatami had always represented a strong enlightenment uh, project in Iran not entirely understood by everyone but he uh, you know he he had the mantra and he was the one that promoted the mantra Iran for all Iranians I mean this is actually in some ways the first time that such a bold statement had been made of course Ahmadinejad ironically given his quote nationalism um, rejected this you know this idea of Iran for all all Iranians was a bizarre statement as far as they were concerned which you know contradicts it. These nationalist credentials, but I think there are others who who quite clearly have a much more nationalistic uh, um, approach and probably more credibility. Now, you know whether future leadership, um, uh, you know, will come from the established, you know, the known quantities in the Islamic Republic or from elsewhere is is something I'm you know not clear on. I certainly think that uh, in the first instance, uh, is probably more likely to come from. Uh those, part, those uh, uh, leaders in the Islamic Republic are currently categorized as dissidents, by the way. But, you know, they will be seen as certainly uh, more in tune with the national interest. So even someone like Mir Hossein Mousavi, by no means a perfect choice, but nonetheless someone who's been under house arrest, who may uh, have won the election in 2009, um, he could basically, you know, certainly be brought out of house arrest. And basically um, asked to head up a government of national unity. For instance, in fact, Rafsanjani has already said that Uh, Rafsanjani has said has tried to promote a government of national unity. Whether that's credible, of course, in terms of the popular mood, um, is another matter. But certainly, I think the people will, you know, are not keen really for a major political upheaval in that sense, and will probably go for a degree of compromise as long as it also had sufficient credibility for them to believe it.
0: You mentioned earlier that Iran has a educated and literate middle class. In the the near future, do you see them being able to uh, participate more in the political uh, arena in Iran?
1: Well, I think if Iran is ever to to be able to reach its full potential in a political and economic sense, it will have to. I mean, it's it's just a simple fact. Um, I think under Rafsanjani and Khatami, they used these people very much in a technocratic sense. Um, That is, you know, get involved, but then get involved in politics, just get involved in running the country, administration rather than political. I think in the future, if they really want to make the most out of the potential Iran has, they will have to allow a degree of participation in the politics of the country, not just in the administration. At the moment, they're not involved in the politics or the administration, which is why the whole thing is just such a disaster. I mean... Even if you look at the central bank or other things, I mean, you see that actually the people in charge are clearly quite incompetent and aren't able really to handle things. Eventually, you know, what they will ask, uh, I suspect, is they will ask these people to come back to sort of like administer. Uh, My sense is they will say, well, no, we're not just going to come back and administer. We want certain rights. And this is the interesting thing. Um, there is always a question mark, but you know, they will play the nationalist card and say, your country needs you. I think the critical factor will be is they will say, good, my country needs me, but this is what I want in return. And the minute they say that will be the moment when Iranian political maturity, if I can put it that way, begins.
0: Obviously in recent uh, history, the past year and a half, uh, the Arab Spring has been the big news out of the Middle East. Do you see something in that vein uh, potentially taking hold in Iran or do you think the state is too strong and would be able to control such a popular uprising?
1: I think the state is strong, but it's fragile and it's becoming increasingly fragile. So in some ways, or another word people use is brittle. So it has all the veneer of this strength. It has a strong coercive force. It has a fairly corrupt judiciary that basically does as it's told. Um, It's not afraid to use force. But on the other hand, it's... It's weak in a number of areas. Economically, it's weak. Um, It's not popular by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, People have a deep suspicion of it. If you look at the run on the real, for instance, recently, uh, is this purely an economic crisis? I don't think so. I think this is a crisis of confidence. It's a crisis of, of political confidence, principally, that people are saying, we don't trust you anymore. We don't think you have the solutions. And therefore, they're running for cover in the dollar or whatever else they're looking for. So there are there are serious structural problems there. And if you listen to the likes of people, people like Nikki Keddie and others who work on revolutions in Iran, they'll tell you that Iran in the 20th century at least has been amongst the most revolutionary of countries. I see no reason for that. To change. I think the government is well aware of this, which is why it constantly huffs and puffs and says that, you know, any repression, any, any, any uprising will be crushed. I think sooner or later, this cycle of protests that we've seen from, ooh, you know, from 1906, or let's say 1892, 1906, in the 1950s, or earlier, 79, and then the sequence, you know, it normally happens maybe a generation every 10 years. It's it's happening, I have to say, with increasing frequency. And I think this reflects also the intensity of the problems, the education of the public, um, other factors that previous generations did not have, the means of communication, technology, all sorts of things mean that actually ideas are being circulated much more vigorously than ever before. And uh, if you combine that with the economic malaise that is clearly setting in, it's a recipe for uh, a certain amount of combustion.
0: Well, Ali, thank you uh, so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Before I let you go, could you uh, talk for a few minutes about what projects you're currently working on? Um, Well, at the moment,
1: uh, having... What, one of the things that interested me when I did this project was really um, historiography. And uh, I'm, I was always interested in the way in which um, nationalists had sort of uh, defined history in Iran, how they, how they saw their historical uh, legacy and how that fed into identity. And I think one of the areas I want to really explore more, and I think there's an enormous amount that can be done, I just... Um, uh, there's, there's so much literature coming out of Iran now. I mean, a lot of... Um, uh, papers, documents, uh, collections that it would have been quite difficult to get hold of previously over the last uh, few decades, and certainly through the hard work of a, n- a number of individuals in Iran, have now been published uh, and are now much more accessible. Um, uh, it also helps, of course, that the real is so weak in Iran today because it means a lot of this stuff is now purchasable and we can bring it abroad. But it's, uh, um, it means that for scholars and historians of Iran, there's a lot more material there available. It means that a, a, a project looking at um, the uses and abuses of history, if I could put it that way, in modern Iran becomes much more feasible and much more um, uh, accessible. So that's really where I'm looking at. And I have a number of projects. Um, I think the next one really is to look at uh, um, how particular moments in Iranian history have been interpreted and reinterpreted uh, by Iranian historians in the 20th century um, and and, and, and how they've been used
0: and abused for political purposes. Excellent. Sounds very interesting. And thank you again uh, for talking with me today. Thank you very much, Carl. (laughs) Take care. Cheers. Thank you for listening to another episode of New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. And thanks again to Ali Ansari for taking the time to talk with me today about his book, The Politics of Nationalism in Modern Iran. You can follow New Books in Middle Eastern Studies on Twitter, where we are at New Books Mideast, and also on Facebook, as well as through our website, newbooksinmiddleeasternstudies.com, where you can find links to subscribe to our show. To send me your comments or to suggest an author or book for a future show, you can use the contact information that is provided on the show's website. Also, if you enjoy the shows, please take a moment to rate them on iTunes, which will help more people find our shows. Thank you for listening.